Welcome to the final installment of Behind the Prose. Uh, we have a special series this week. We've been at the Creative Nonfiction Writers Conference in Pittsburgh, and we are recording right now. Today's Friday, and we're sitting here with three great writers for a special panel called Write This Way, How to Find and Develop a Niche in Your Writing. Uh, and so we're going to talk to them about how they have carved a space for themselves in the writing world, uh, how a writer can clarify and narrow their own interests to develop a personal brand. Uh, this roundtable features writers Jason Biddle, Christina Marusic, and Shannon Reed. So I'm going to let them introduce themselves to you so you can get to know their voices, and I'm going to ask them to tell us a little bit about what they write about. Okay, uh, I'm Shannon Reed, and I am principally known for writing humor. Um, I contribute to The New Yorker, and I write for McSweeney's Internet Tendency and um, BuzzFeed and a couple other places. And I also write some nonfiction and fiction as well. Hey, I'm Christina Marusic, and um, I am a freelance journalist focusing on stories related to social justice, LGBT and gender equality, and the environment. Um, and I've written for a variety of outlets. I was a staff writer at MTV News for a while, um, and since I'm a regular contributor at Women's Health, Slate, The Advocate, and others. Hi, I'm Jason Biddle, and uh, I am uh, a writer on the internet of things uh, weird, fascinating, gruesome, um, sometimes scary about animals. I contribute to National Geographic News, um, SmithsonianMagazine.com, and Slate, and a bunch of other places, but my interests are usually uh, solving some of the questions people have about animals, clearing up misunderstandings about animals, um, environment, really anything uh, related to claws, teeth, venom, all the cool stuff. And uh, happy to be here. Thanks. Thank you. So first question is, why or is it, do you think it's important for a writer to have a niche? Why or why not? For me, I, I can say that uh, having a niche was huge because whenever you're going into an MFA program like I was, uh, actually here at the University of Pittsburgh, you could write about anything. A lot of people want to write memoir. A lot of people want to do investigative stuff. And for me... I didn't specifically know I wanted to write about animals or the environment, but the first day of uh, graduate school, Lee Gutkin said, you have to have a book idea. <laughs> I didn't have a book idea, but I just spent four months in the Great Smoky Mountain National Park trapping and shooting uh, invasive wild pigs. And I thought, eh, maybe that's interesting. And Lee thought, that's really interesting. So I sort of went off on that whole tangent and through that realized it's not just about pigs, it's about salamanders and bears and poison ivy and all these amazing things. And I sort of just fell in love with the whole natural world writing beat. And I just took off from there. And uh, it turns out that there's actually a market on the internet for this type of writing. And even people that aren't interested in getting scientific degrees are really, really interested in the world around them. Um, maybe more so because they don't interact with it so much anymore. They don't have jobs where they're out in the wild. But everybody loves a cute animal or a scary animal, and uh, they like reading about them. So for me, having that niche just 
it, it centered me and focused me and it uh, sent me towards the sort of publications that pay for my writing. And uh, luckily there's no shortage of that. So it was definitely, uh, it, you know, partly my own interest, but also just I found a market and I went with it. Yeah, I um, similarly um, was sort of figuring this out in grad school um, while I was getting my MFA. Um, and I'm at I'm working on a memoir now that covers I spent a weird I had a childhood in a very weird cult <laughs> um, and from there became an FBI monitored animal rights and anti-war activist as an undergrad um, and so I was one of those obnoxious undergrad activists who was like a Debbie Downer at parties and wanted to tell you what was wrong with what was what you were drinking and what you were eating. Um, and so I've chilled out a lot as an adult, but um, those issues are still really important to me, really, really dear to my heart. Um, so it was kind of natural for me to want to write about those things that I was excited about. I especially like covering um, young people involved in social justice movements um, because I relate to that. And because I admire the work they're doing. Um, so it's also been helpful, though. I think that once you start down a certain path, and I'm sure both of you can attest to this, you then kind of become an expert, and mm -hmm. then you have contacts in that realm um, who you can follow up with for additional interviews, um, and people come to know you as someone who has expertise in a certain area, um, which then helps you get more and more of that work. Yeah, there's yeah. definitely a momentum to it. You know, mm -hmm. Once it gets going, then not only are you seeing stories everywhere but people are coming to you with stories and um i've gotten a lot of interesting pieces because someone came to me either with their research or something happening in their hometown or even just you know hey have you heard about this weird animal and uh it's this it, it you're right it's, it sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy sort of thing yeah i think so i i'm really interested to hear that both of you are much we're much more um I think deliberate about finding your niche or maybe in the retelling of it more than at the time. Um, but I definitely fell into it. And I feel like with a niche, it's sometimes not so much that you go out looking for one as you just develop one and that's what you become known for. And suddenly, you know, you look back a couple of years later and you're like, oh, I, I'm a humor writer. Okay. That's what I do. Um, interesting. Uh, Cause that's definitely how it happened for me. I, was in an MFA program. I also went to the University of Pittsburgh and I was um, majoring in fiction. And I found myself greatly helped by the workshop model of the program, but also incredibly frustrated by the workshop model of the program. I got so tired of picking over everything <laughs> and, and not being the global literary superstar <laughs> that I expected to be after a couple of months, I guess. And, uh, and I started just <laughs> submitting humor pieces to McSweeney's Internet Tendency because it was something that we weren't talking about in the program and nobody was workshopping and it was just something I could do for myself. I was like, I can be funny. I'll just do that. Um, and I racked up a lot of rejection letters, but then I started getting published and suddenly that, that was my niche. That was what I was doing. I had a funny viewpoint on things. Um, and I, I don't mean to imply that that was all like just like happenstance like huh look at that I ended up being funny but just that I, I think you do if you are producing work and you're faithful about getting your voice out there you end up finding what it is that you're supposed to be writing because the publishing world wants that from you and people are excited to get that work from you so perhaps it's not just about 
I think if I had been told, like, go find something that you're interested in and write about that, I would have found that incredibly limiting. I would have been like, oh, there's so many things I want to write about. But for me, it's more about, like, what kind of, like, what effect do you want to have on your readers? What ripples do you want to be causing in the pond? Mm. It's funny that you say that about Workshop, too, because I feel like, you know, you probably became the funny one. And I felt like I became the animal guy. Mm. And it wasn't, you know, yeah, I was into animals before that. But, you know, a year before that in college, I wasn't the animal guy. Mm -hmm. But once you're in that workshop and everybody has these amazing ideas and stories and histories, you're just like, wow, I could never write anything like that. But someone keys into something and you're, you know, all of a sudden you're sort of set down that path. Mm. It's nice to have that foothold, right? Like it's nice to have that Mm -hmm. sort of like, well, I can look at it. My point of view on this would be blank. And you can feel somewhat secure in that instead of like, oh, my God, there's so many different options and I and I don't know what to do um, because the MFA programs are wonderful, but they're also really unsettling and it's good to feel like something's settled. Yeah. What advice would you give to writers who might be in that place right now where they're feeling unsettled and they don't feel like they have a niche or a place? I think the most important thing is to continue to pursue your non-writing interests Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that oftentimes leads you in unexpected ways to what you want to be writing about to um, what you're most excited about um, to what you're most interested in learning more about sometimes I've also um, taken on assignments about things I don't I know very little about going in, but I'm really excited to learn about them. Um, And so then I know that the process of conducting interviews and researching is going to be enjoyable for me. um, And and I think that comes across. Um, And I think that's also, you know, I spent a lot of years writing copy and um, writing stuff that was less exciting to me for money um, just for the sake of writing and particularly for writing and getting paid for it. Mm -hmm. And all of that absolutely helped to... Um, hone my craft and make me a better writer and also, you know, make me more marketable as a writer. Um, But, you know, I think the reason I was able to sort of eventually carve out a niche is because um, while I was doing that, I didn't stop being interested in the other stuff I was interested in and learning about it and knowing what was going on in those worlds. Yeah, um, that's one thing I would recommend is go do a job, doesn't matter what it is, but if you hate it enough, it'll tell you what you want to be doing. You know, I worked in advertising for three years after graduate school, sort of fell into it, um, never really taking it seriously. And then after three years, I was like, this is my career. You know, this is what I'm doing. Um, and at night, I, you know, when I was in my cups, I would sort of just like, you know, think, why, why can't someone just pay me to learn cool things about animals and then write them in a, you know, a fun, you know, exciting way? And then it was sort of, you know, the light bulb goes off and I was like, well, I can start doing that on my own. And I started a blog and uh, one thing sort of led to another. And, you know, here I am today and someone Mm -hmm. pays me to learn about and write about cool animals. So I think definitely knowing what you don't want to do is huge Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, will sort of push you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are both really great pieces of advice. And I I would just kind of concur. I think that you it's. It was. I would say this. It was interesting for me. Um, my mom is in the pa- in the process of packing up her house, and uh, moving. And I was going through old stuff that I have in the house. You know, notes and and yearbooks and that kind of thing. And I realized that 
being funny has been an important value for me for much of my life. Like making people laugh is a big joy of mine. And I suspect that if you are lost and you're not sure what to write about, if you look back to what your original interests were, um, perhaps it's not going to be an exact match, but there's probably something there that's going to push you towards. I think what the ultimate goal is, is to write about what you really care about and who you really are. Mm -hmm. And, that person has most likely been in place for a very long time. So especially in the hubbub of um, the literary world now where there's so many different places to publish and there's so many different venues and so many different people doing so many different things, like look at who you really are, what's actually of importance to you. That might be a place to start. That actually leads into one of the questions that I was going to ask you and Jason to follow up on I know Christina mentioned the family cult and if we were doing another show we would definitely go down that road but we got Forever a few minutes left just hear about the family cult. <laughs> we need to know this I'll read that book. <laughs> so you're coming back to behind the pros as are you Shannon as are you Jason however um and so you just said Shannon that you realized really young that you know being funny was something that came naturally to you and what's your thing um, and so, Jason, tell us, how did you become this, become fascinated with these weird kind of animals? Where did that come from? I mean, I, you know, I was always the little kid that was poking dead things and, you know, catching <laughs> snakes and that kind of stuff. And uh, where I grew up, that wasn't an unusual thing. You know, I grew where... up, you know, sort of uh, southeast of Pittsburgh. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we called it the mountains, but sort of like the Allegheny uh, front. And... That was just what we did, you know, back then. And it sounds like old-timey or something, but it was 1989. Uh, <laughs> but um, so then I went, you know, I went to college, and I majored in writing, and uh, then I didn't apply to any graduate schools, and I had to do something after I graduated. And someone told me about this thing called the SCA, the Student Conservation Association. And basically it's like AmeriCorps, but for the environment. And so I went to Washington State and worked on a trail crew, and we would just, like, go backpacking for nine days and build trails, and it was amazing. And then um, when that was done, I had nothing else to do, so I applied for another one, and that took me to Tennessee, where I was trapping and shooting the pigs. And it, Tennessee was just insane to me because I'd never been to the Smokies, and all of a sudden I had all of these uh, wildlife people, like, pretty much at my beck and call, and I could do anything I wanted, so I did pig stuff, I did bear stuff, uh, flying squirrels and uh, salamanders and fish, and it was just, it was a bonanza. Uh, I still, it, there are no national parks near me in Pittsburgh, so I thought, well, that's a dead-end career, um, but then I sort of realized that I could write about this stuff, and, you know, it's basically taken me to all these different places. I got to go to Africa last year mm. um, on safari, which was just like a life goal just the coolest I can't like I might cry right now just thinking about it um but I think just realizing that even though I never got those science degrees and I sort of just gave up on that whole natural history side of my life um I was able to bring it back in through writing because you can write about whatever you want to write about and it just it honestly didn't occur to me until late in life later in life that I could do that so I would think you know maybe not Every niche is going to have a market out there for it, uh, quite like um, science writing. But it's worth looking into because there might be something out there that would actually pay you to do what you love. And I mean, that's worth looking for. 
how do you stay on top of your respective fields or, you know, the topics that you're interested in? Are there certain publications that you followed, other associations you might be members of? How do you keep up? So I um, have a very elaborate tweet deck, <laughs> which has a lot to do with this. Um, that's really helpful if you want to report on sort of breaking stories or things as they're happening. Um, I also, you know, I get every newsletter and I am on everyone's press list. So if there's an organization I've written about in the past um, or an activist group and they have something big coming up, they'll email me to let me know, which is really helpful. Um, that's actually a great way to sort of take a lot of that work off your shoulders is to let people know I'm interested in covering, um, you know, this world. If you have something going on, let me know. And those those folks are really excited to do that generally because they're trying to get the word out. Um, um, and those contacts are often really excited to know someone who's interested in covering what they're up to. Um, so I rely pretty heavily on people um, letting me know what's going on um, and then kind of looking out into the world. Um, you know, I also read the news voraciously and um, have my regular websites and my Feedly. Um, but the importance of a well-organized tweet deck cannot be overstated. Yeah, I'll second Twitter. Uh, mm -hmm. That was going to be what I was going to say. Um, it's just it, it allows you to tap into the pulse of your your little world. And my little world is all scientists and science writers and um, not a whole lot else on Twitter, really. And it's just I love it, though. It's like an online community. You know, I work from home, so I don't have coworkers, mm. but I have people that I interact with daily through Twitter. And um, the other thing is if you're interested in science writing, you can sign up for um, these uh, embargoed press lists, uh, press releases. So you can find out about the stories that are happening before they actually come out. Um, so whenever, you know, a crazy, there was a, what was it today? There was an ancient marsupial in Australia that ate a lot of snails. It's all over all the science news sites today, but I knew it was coming out a week ago because of those press lists. So if you're interested in science writing, look up a website called Eureka Alert. Um, and as long as you don't have any competing interests uh, you can sign up for free and it's great but um i would definitely highly recommend having a twitter account even if you're not interested in tweeting just follow up everybody it's great yeah i agree i mean the nice thing about being a humor writer is that theoretically anything can be funny <laughs> so i have the scope to pay attention to whatever i want to pay attention to um and i also i have a twitter feed i'm a vigilant facebook user um <laughs> and uh, very excessive emailer as well. Um, I I go back and forth. Sometimes I feel like it's very important for me to read all the humor pieces that are coming out. So that I re really need to read Daily Shouts and I really need to read whatever's in the New Yorker that week and I need to be up on what McSweeney's is publishing and so on and so forth. And then I find that inevitably saddening and depressing because I didn't write everything that's on the site <laughs> and I just get really like gloomy about how I'm not that smart and funny and I don't want to write. So I... I I sort of pass a cursory eye over everything um, and see what's happening. Sometimes I think, oh, they stole my idea. Okay. <laughs> um, and then sometimes I think, oh, that was really brilliant. I should have done that. But I try not to actually, as strange as it sounds, I try not to actually engage in reading humor writing that much. <laughs> um, I'm afraid of having my voice affected or I'm afraid of, of inadvertently stealing a joke, having it go into my subconscious and then 
having it come back out three months later in something else, um, which is really hard not to do anyway. But uh, so most of my most of my reading is more about um, politics. I'm a huge politics junkie, and politics is always ripe for a lot of humor writing. And um, and I think about I keep a running list. This is actually my best advice for a humor writer. I keep a running list of ideas that pop into my head or anything that I have an extreme emotion about. Um, I sort of take note of because probably other people are as well, and that would be a good source for humor. The thing about humor is, if only I get the joke, then it's not going to sell. Mm. Um, so right now, I, you know, I live in Pittsburgh, and I was driving in the city the other day, and I was thinking about the concept of the Pittsburgh left, which, um, if any listeners don't know, is that when you are crossing at an intersection at a light. If there's a car on the other side that wants to turn left, you let them go first, even if you're going straight, just as a courtesy. Hmm. That's, I mean, when I was growing up, that's what the Pittsburgh left was, and everybody was like, practice the Pittsburgh left. And of course, it's kind of faded away. I don't know anybody who actually does it anymore, but I started thinking about like other rules we should have in Pittsburgh <laughs> and generated a whole uh, humor post that's going to be on the glass block sometime soon about. Uh, Pittsburgh driving rules and that's just from like taking a kernel of an idea and remembering it and then sitting down to work on it a little bit um, which I think most humor writing is in all honesty mm. I it's really funny having moved here from elsewhere my understanding of the Pittsburgh left was very different from yours ooh, ooh, it was it? that uh, Pittsburgh drivers are jerks and will go <laughs> left before you get to go straight without yeah. considering that you're going to run into them. You can see it's an imperfect science. <laughs> I, I think this sounds like there are a lot of uh, crashes in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Like, what does this mean? No, we actually have like more car accidents. That I, we're really up there in terms of cities and numbers of car accidents. Yeah. The world. Yes, yeah. the statistics are dire. <laughs> As you would guess if you drive here. Yeah. You can, yeah. no, don't drive or walk. Apparently. Yeah. I'm like, How I New York for so long and Pittsburgh just seems like a hotbed of niceness in comparison oh, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. comparatively <laughs> so we're coming to the end of our time here I'm really excited to be with you guys because this is my first face to face Ooh. behind the pros podcast I'm oh. usually virtual oh, cool. talking to people through the internet so I'm actually looking at their faces I'm not talking over them like I usually do <laughs> because I can see when they're going to speak uh, but I, I really appreciate you guys joining me for this special edition. And I'm just curious, where do you all see yourself moving in your niche within the next five years? Like, what are some personal goals for you? I definitely want to write longer pieces. Um, and I would like to write a book at some point. Uh, I'm holding that one until the kids are a little older because I've been told not to even start thinking about that. But um, definitely. And then I think, uh, you know, the the more mediums I can get into the better so podcasts like this are huge and something I really haven't done much work on um, YouTube maybe and uh, I guarantee you there'll be five new you know things in five years that uh, people will be using to get their news and their entertainment and um, I think you have to keep moving forward you know all my stuff's on the internet I don't do anything in print almost and uh, so you have to keep moving with the times especially with the uh, the news beat. Um, I've been working on my memoir for a very long time now, and I'm really eager to wrap that up and uh, hopefully find a place for it in the world. Um, and in terms of my reportage, similarly, I'm interested in doing some longer, more in-depth investigative stuff. 
Um, I have some of that, a little bit of that on the horizon. Um, and I'm right now um, just trying to get better and better bylines. I just feel that I'm I'm working to scale the ladder mm. <laughs> bylines right now. Um, so I hope to keep doing that. Whenever I hear um, about goals, I always think of a friend of mine in theater who used to say about parts that he really wanted but didn't get. You have to hold on tightly and let go lightly. Mm. Um, and that's kind of where I am with goals. Like I think they're so great and I love having them. And I also am very eager to let them go. I, I didn't have the goal of writing for The New Yorker. Um, that wasn't it was a vague dream in the sense that I think many writers had that dream, but it wasn't a goal um, and it's, it happened and that's fantastic. So I'm super interested in seeing what happens to my career when I just let it ride. Um, at the same time, I am working on a novel and it's a spy parody novel about a woman who's recruited into a spy organization somewhat against her will. And I'm excited to see how that turns out. Thank you guys for, for being here. I feel like I learned a lot. Um, I'm someone who has had varied interests and I still don't necessarily feel like I have a niche. So that's kind of why I thought of this topic. Like, how did you guys kind of get into this? And I feel that a lot of people, you know, are struggling with that. My brother used to say, oh, well, you know, your niche is not having a niche. I'm like, mm, that's not right. <laughs> so hopefully this has helped someone else out there. Um, but I want to thank you guys for being here. Jason Biddle, Christina Marusic, Shannon Reed. You're going to go to the Behind the Pros uh, page if you're listening and check out their full bios, get links to their work, get links to their site, connect with them on Twitter. I'm sure they would be happy to hear from you and, and hear yeah, what you sure. thought. Um, also, I want to thank the Creative Nonfiction Magazine, Creative Nonfiction foundation for allowing behind the pros to come into the creative nonfiction 2016 writers conference this year uh, in Pittsburgh and we brought you some live broadcasts and we have this for you today uh, learn more about the magazine by going to the links on behind the pros they have online classes they put calls for submissions there's all kind of great things that you can get involved in um, and so you know here we are. We're not in a trapezoid-shaped closet today. We are in a nice uh, room at the Wyndham University Center, Pittsburgh. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Thank the guests. And thank you. You're thank welcome. You. Yeah, thank you. Until next time, listen, learn, and write. <laughs>